hey, I can do this in this many parts. I can do this in this many sections. And, and then as you're teaching, in the midst of your teaching, or in the midst of my teaching, I don't know if you do this, or in the midst of your learning, because learning happens before teaching. But oftentimes when I'm teaching, learning happens instantaneously for me. And I'm like, wow, I miss that. Okay, I'm going to go back to that. And wow, I miss that. I'm going to go back to that. And that's true for everything that we've ever learned in Scripture, everything I've ever learned. So we could literally be forever and ever and ever in a particular book of the Bible. And we're not going to go all the way through Genesis before we get into Timothy. But I want to at least get through the fall and at least get to the place where we start looking at, um, at the world that we know after the flood. And then we'll be in the New Testament for a little while. Then we're going to come back. And so eventually I'd love to, I would love to preach through Genesis in its totality. In little pieces. But I say all that because, beloved, there's, there is no way that, that my mortal mind can plan what God is going to show us in this text because there is, not a, there is no such thing as an exhaustive commentary on Genesis. There's no person who's ever said everything that needs to be said about, about Genesis. But there's plenty of things that have been said that, is myths, that have missed the point. You've missed the point. And I'll repeat myself today because it's this week seven, and you know, Pastor Jesse preached last week, and I really appreciate that. It was a, it was a blessing. And, and, and yet, sometimes we forget week to week to week to week what we've learned. So I'll repeat some things in my introduction that'll get us back all on the same page and prepare our hearts and minds logically to see the next step. But more importantly, I pray that by the power of the Word of God, it'll prepare our hearts spiritually to behold the goodness of Christ, to behold the goodness of God, to behold the person of the gospel. One of those things is to remember that we are not to take science of today and to come to the Bible with science of today. We're not to interpret scripture through the lens of scientific discovery. It's, a, it's an extremely bad way of looking at Genesis. Extremely bad way. It doesn't mean that we can't see things that God has taught us in his word and see scientific discovery and go look at that. But when we do it the other way around, it is to say that God needs it. That God is revealing Himself through other means other than His Word. And that's not the case. That's not the case. God is not in the business of revealing Himself through scientific discovery, through poetry, through philosophy, through great minds, through weak minds, through acts of power. He reveals Himself in the fullness of all of His glory through the person of Jesus Christ, who was written of by Moses, who was written of by the, by the prophets, who was written of by the judges, who was written of by the kings who was written of by the apostles and now here we are we read them and we learn them and there are instructions given in the scripture but we are to pay attention solely to the instruction of the new testament for in the new testament we find as the christians as the church we find what we are to be about what we are to be doing what we how we are to be thinking and so when we go to genesis then we do take a filter with us we take the filter of christ we take the filter of the apostles' teaching, which is authoritative and inerrant, as is Moses' teaching, because it is all the teaching of God, but without the apostles, without Christ, without the fullness of the glory of God, face to face, we will not see what Genesis is trying to say. We will not see anything, but we'll see the mystical, and then we will imagine all sorts of things, and there's one true way of finding heresy, and that is to approach the Bible with imagination. There's one true way of finding ourselves bogged down in the ditches that don't matter, and that is when we come with a 
new idea concerning who God is and what He's trying to say. Now, that doesn't mean that the same old, same old ideas that we've heard for millennia are true because obviously the Israelites did not understand and obviously the Jews did not understand and obviously many of the Gentile converts supposedly the supposed converts or so-called converts did not understand and they continued to embark on this mission to try to convince people otherwise and what did the apostles do they wrote letters to correct that stuff and we have them today and we can be corrected there's nothing new under the sun we can be corrected so as we come to the reality of this text, when we begin to see who Christ is in Genesis, when we have been shown by the mercy of God through His Word who Christ is from the apostles, when we read John's Gospel and we see that John starts out with an illusion, not illusion, illusion. A look back to Moses, to the creation account. When we see Paul writing to the church of Colossae, when he talks about the power of Christ, which is the Word, His ability to just decree, and it is, for He is God, that He upholds the universe by His power. And that all things were created for Him, as Paul writes to the Hebrews. And that through Him all things were made. We then can learn from this text that there is a God that is displaying His power through the creation of the world. And that is insignificant in and of itself except that it points to the power of God in redemption. Because unlike the gods of myths, unlike the gods of men, to have power to make something is worthless except that it is all glorious, that it, that it is all perfect, that it is all good, and that is the atheistic charge continually. As long as I've been alive, since probably I was 16 years old, I've, I've heard this charge. How can there be a good God and there be so much wickedness in the world? Because that is the decree of God. That is the purpose of the good God of heaven, that He created the world, and in its creation, He ordered it, and He purposed it. And He created life in it. And then out of that life, He put humanity in it. And out of that humanity, that humanity left unto itself would do nothing but destroy itself. So only God can create true life that is good. And only God out of chaos can create order. And only God out of death can create redemption. I said in the very first week, seven, eight weeks ago now, I said in Genesis 1, you don't have to turn there, we're going to go to Genesis 2 today. But I said in Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, verse 2, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I mentioned that there is some poetry there, that there is poetic rhyme and meter and if you were to go and look, not that you have to, not that Hebrew is even important. It's not even important to biblical scholars in the context of shepherding. You don't have to know it. You don't even have to be able to approach it. But it is nice to know that I can go and look and that I have enough tools, not enough verbal chops, but enough tools to go and look and see what this says. And there have been some really interesting things that I've learned through the years. When Robin and I first married, we joined a 
a, um, I don't even know what it's called now, but we joined an organization so that we could take Hebrew classes from rabbis. And that was very difficult. I think we lasted two weeks. <laughs> like, yeah, no. Nah. It's just not in my, it wasn't in my ear then, you know. It was different, and reading differently, and, and the symbols, those aren't letters. What are those things? I mean, it was just so different, so different. But it always sounded beautiful. And I've heard Hebrew-speaking people read the Hebrew of Genesis 1 and 2, and there's specific words there, tohu va vohu. And that is, without form and void. And it's written in such a way that it is poetic when you hear it. And I'm not going to try to do it for you. Go listen. Look it up somewhere. Listen to a true Hebrew-speaking person read the original language of Genesis 1 and, 1 and 2. It's amazing. So it's written in a poetic style, in its original tongue. It was written, and these words, tohu vavohu, are to rhyme, and they're supposed to give the reader an understanding of something. A literal translation of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 would be, or Genesis 1, 2 would be, now the land was wild and waste and darkness was over the face of the abyss. And if we look throughout the Old Testament and we see the use of these words in Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 45, we see this idea and being descriptive and the idea of tohu va vohu being chaos and disorder. Chaos and disorder. I remember as a child, I found an old chemistry set, me and my cousin, in my grandma's closet. And we thought, the first thing we thought when we saw that, we could blow something up. And we did. We set the yard on fire and a few pecans on fire, pecan trees on fire. It was not a happy day. But it's all we wanted. We just wanted to create some kind of explosion. And we did just that. And we exploded a little pile out in the yard and it... So wonder it didn't get on us. I don't even know what it was. I couldn't tell you. It was just a bunch of powders and chemicals and things. We just mixed it together and we kept mixing until it boomed. And it worked. We created fire, but it was out of order. So just to put something out there that it works, there's some worldviews, one of which is called panentheism, that, that teaches that there is a cosmic force that we would call God, and He was the instrument, or it was the instrument of creation because it takes something powerful to do that. But He sort of went... Poof! And everything became, and he spun it into being, and he just sat back and watched it work. Well, I love tops. Do you like tops, spinning tops? I love tops. If I had the time to waste and the money to follow, I would probably buy some of those really high-end tops that just spin and spin and spin. It would be so cool. And what's really cool about it is that you can get them all spinning together, but what happens when they touch each other? There's a reactionary thing there. There's some physics going on there, and it's violent. Well, God did not create the world and just hope that it went into order. He put it into order. He put it into order. So we should understand this in the beginning as chaos and disorder. The waste should be understood as uninhabitable. When we think of wasteland, it's a place where people can't live. And each of these things should help us remember that before there was something, there was nothing but God. And each of these words show that there was nothingness. And Genesis 1 establishes that only God can and only God did make something out of nothing and that only God can order that that He makes and only God can make everything good according to His purposes and by His power. And ultimately, this is a picture of the gospel, as you'll see. 
as you'll see. So God makes things and God prepares a place for that, those things. And God then on the things that He makes prepares a place for other things that He makes. And then through that, God gives life. That's what we've seen in Genesis 1. God prepares a separation of things that He makes and He separates waters. And in those places, He separates land from water and He prepares a place so that on those places He can create living things. And then He creates living things. And those living things are able to perpetuate continuity. I know that's redundant, but they're able to continue to grow and to thrive and to replicate themselves. They become fruitful and they multiply. And life is there and God created all the necessary means and purposes for life to thrive in this world. Why did He do that? Because only God can create the necessary conditions for us to have eternal life. That's the point. And we talked last week about the image of God. We talked about the image of God and God gives life to all things. The creatures and the bugs and everything have the breath of life in them. And then man has the breath of life in him. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And then God declares all these things good. But the question then that's always on my mind is that what is, what is good? What is really good? And I think two or three weeks ago we even went to the Gospels <clears throat> And we looked at the rich young ruler who called Jesus good. And Jesus responds with an incredibly quick theological punch. Why do you call me good? For only God is good. And see, from childhood, I remember learning in preschool the, uh, the, the blessing. You remember the blessing? As God is good. God is great. Or God is great. God is good. He has got to rhyme, right? Let us thank Him for our food. Something like that. Then I had a great uncle who says, rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub. You know, that was a good, that was a good rhyme. So we're taught to, to, to pray that God is good. I was like, why did I even say that? Because <laughs> we're taught that. Culturally, we're taught that. God is good. But then the question is, what is good? Because we could easily argue, well, God has created the world, and it's going to hell in a handbasket, and everything's so evil, so where's this good God? Well, God is showing... And God is purposing and God is pointing to the fullness of His glory that only He can take that which is chaotic and make it true and good and live forever. Because there is nothing but God who can establish life. The oath that doctors take is to do no harm. Because they have an undercurrent of, uh, in, in their desire to be physicians or surgeons or whatever it may be to help life to grow and to continue to keep people healthy so that they may live an abundant life. But the scripture says that the only place that abundant life is found is in Jesus Christ. So even in, listen, even in the great idea of wanting to preserve life, and it should be something that we do, it's only temporary. Eternal life, by definition, is not temporary. It's forever. God is good. God alone is good. We talked about the goodness of God. We looked at several reasons why He is good. But one of those that I want to come back to today as we get into chapter 2 is that God is sovereign. Let's go to chapter 2 of Genesis. God's sovereignty is good. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished the work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and set it apart because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where it is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of the Assyria. And fourth river is the, the Euphrates, Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you do eat of it, you shall surely die. I'm going to stop. We don't have to get into Eve today. Because honestly, we're probably not going to get into all that. There's a lot there. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot there. But why? Why did Moses, by the Spirit, why did God write this down this way? Why did he want to bring the Tigris and the Euphrates into it? Of whom we, of which we are all probably somewhat familiar. Why? Why? I don't know except to shock the systems of the people reading it, going, oh, this isn't a fairy tale. These are real places. But God is sovereign. God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make them in our likeness. And we've said already that nothing in creation had anything to do with his existence. I mean, think about that for a second. This is, this is the way the Lord said it. Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our likeness. See, this is God working by himself, alone. Creation had nothing to do with it. There was no particles or things or substance that God had to work with in order to create man, create humanity. God had already created the land and the dirt, so out of the dirt He created man. Somebody calls us a dirt bag, we should say thank you. Thank you very much. Not only are we dirt, but we're water. And we return to that. We return to that. 
But here is God alone working. Yet he works in the plural, and he works in the plural in this context, not because he's talking to any other thing, not because there's other beings present. And he's saying, hey guys, let's work on this together. No, it is God alone doing the work. It is God alone in his power creating all things. And God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three are one. Now this is a mystery, and it's supposed to be a mystery. It is something that God reveals to us through His Word. It's something that the Spirit of God settles our hearts in so that we can rest in the reality of it without understanding the intricacies of it. So that means by faith we understand that God created the world. But the reason that I bring that out is because there are many times in Scripture and every time we see the plurality of God speaking... He's always talking concerning the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He's always talking of Himself in three persons, equally, uniquely, specifically, at the same time. Not different times, not different seasons, not different dispensations, not different forms, not different modes, but there is an eternal God who is eternally the Father, eternally the Son, eternally the Spirit, and neither the Father, Son, or the Spirit are the other. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son of the Father, and vice versa. They're distinct persons. But all of the Godhead, God Himself, is at work and alone in the work work of creation. And therefore, in this way, He is also alone in the work of redemption. I want you to hear that. As God is alone and sovereign in the work of creation, creation, it it is to start the trickle of the great See the flow of the great river of seeing that redemption is all of God. You hear it said historically, all of God, all of grace. Yet we have distorted that in our humanity. We have distorted that in our imagination. Brothers and sisters, we distort the Word of God. That's what we do. We distort everything. I mean, we we change things because we think so much about them. Yet God does not change. His power does not change. His purposes do not change. His decrees do not change. And I know that a lot of folks come back with that. Well, what about these? We look at the narrative of the Old Testament when God did this and then God did that. God did this and then God said that. Or blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. So God is interacting with humanity, but He's not changed His design. He's not changed His decrees. He's just interacting relationally throughout history that it may be recorded for us. And we'll see some of that. But God alone is sovereign in salvation. Salvation is not offered to anyone. Salvation is not an option. Salvation is not a decision that people make. Salvation is a decreed work of God that the world was created for So that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the true image of God in all of His essence as God and also as man would be the one who satisfies the wrath of God for the elect. And that Christ died on the cross and His death satisfied the wrath of God forevermore against the people whom God has known before the foundation of the world. So the the Lord, the God... And all the persons of the Godhead are at work doing 
and working and creating as one God for His own personal glory and purpose. Now we've seen in Genesis 1, we've gone through all these God said and God said and God said, then God did and then it was. And this is something that we need to understand. This is also poetic in its construction. It's like a, almost like a song, if you will. God does, God says, God does, and there it was. God says, God does, and there it was. You know? It's like the stanzas, if you will. And so when we think about this, and we've learned about the decrees of God, that God gets His way because He said that it shall be. God is not changing. So if God is sovereign in all that He does to give life, then God's sovereignty in creating life is only for the purpose of showing that He's sovereign in giving eternal life. That's the reason Genesis exists, so that we know that God is sovereign and powerful to give life. So if He's the one that created it all to start with, He's not a panentheistic God. He is a sovereign God who rules accordingly. Remember, God decreed to create everything from nothing. God decreed, remember, the order out of chaos. God decreed the point of rest, the Sabbath rest. is the point of it all. The point of it all is that we sit down and we wait and rest with Him. We're satisfied. We're finished. We're not trying to earn anything or build anything or work anything. Friends of mine who are in architecture and engineering have a hard time with this reality. That there's not going to be anything to build, not going to be anything to design in the new heavens and the new earth. Why would there be? And that everything that God has, and that we have done here will be destroyed. I said that one time and a young man literally just about burst into tears. That's why I went into engineering so that I could have longevity in what I build. Would outlive me. You're ruining my life dream, man. He received it, but it broke his heart. Beloved, what we build on this world, this earth as we know it, is temporary. God's not going to correct it. God's not going to massage it. The scripture says that God is going to destroy it with the blink of an eye, and with the blink of an eye, recreate it. Perfect and suddenly. Now, you don't tell me that that is not a picture of regeneration. That's not a picture of the new birth. That's not a picture of what the Spirit of God does in creating a person to see the truth of, of the gospel. The point of it is to rest. God decreed, so we remember that the central image of mankind is Jesus Christ, the God-man. The image, the only true image bearer of God is Jesus. He is the fullness of God in the flesh. So we are just small little shadows of who Jesus really is because He took on flesh as we are. We're not supposed to be exemplifying this divine rule here on earth. That's not what the instructions of Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. But yet I can go to my own library and pull four volumes right now about the rule of God in human, in human hierarchy and monarchy and government. And what does Paul say? Let the government, the government that's been put in place by God, just submit to it. Quit making a big deal. We got bigger things to worry about than worrying about freedoms that aren't really being taken from us. I've got believers that live in Afghanistan that I can't contact right now. They probably won't survive the month. I promise you they won't survive. I'll never see them again. 
missionaries. I don't know if they're there or not. It's over. We ain't got no problems in America in comparison. God is sovereign in that. He's sovereign in that. The image of God is not about creating theocracies, creating nations who stand and rise and fall with godliness. God has purposed, just like the mountain, to fall into the sea. God has purposed all nations to fall into the sea. He's never promised to save a nation. He's promised to save His people. A nation of priests. God decreed life and God decreed death in His sovereignty. And that alone is His doing. It teaches us that there is no one but God who can do this. It teaches us that there is no one that God who can reveal such goodness. God has created death and created life in His decrees. He's purposed it. But yet God alone is the only sense of perfection. He's the only image of righteousness. He's the only absolute good that ever is or ever will exist. So if we are to be good, then we, are to, we must be credited with the goodness of God. We must be created in a very real way into the image of God. And that is what glorification will do. That is not what some people would say is sanctification in this life. No, we set apart our lives as much as we can as we grow and mature in grace. We stop speaking like we shouldn't and we stop punching people and we stop cursing at people and we start loving and serving people. We do grow, but oh, we're only just a hair away from falling right back into it. So there'll be no measure of righteousness with me or you in the context of glory where God will look at us and say, now how good have you been doing? Let's measure you up because we will all fall short of the glory of God. And the only way that we do not fall short of the glory of God is that our righteousness is not of us. It's outside of us. It's imputed to us. It's alien. That's what Paul says. It's an alien righteousness. So our goodness is not in how well we live. That's just celebration. That's just thanksgiving. That's just worship. That's just joy because of who Christ is. But our goodness is in who Christ is. Christ is our goodness because only God is good. So therefore, there's nothing in this world that is good except that God has declared it good. David, Bathsheba, Uriah, you know the story. Nathan comes in, tells David the story about this man who had all the sheep that he could afford and more sheep than he could count and he saw this one sheep that his neighbor had and he took that sheep and David slams his fist on the table and stomps his feet and snorts and slobbers and says who is this man he, let's go kill him and put him in prison and Nathan says you are this man and David tears his clothes and screams and cries out to God and says oh Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. He knew what he'd done. Now, why do I say that? Because God writes this concerning David during that season of his life when he was killing men to cover up his adultery. This is a man after my own heart. God declared David good in the midst of horrendous deception and high disregard of Absolute responsibility as the king. 
Crazy, isn't it? It's very crazy. How is David good? Because God declared him so. Well, how can God declare something that is not good, good, and be just? Because he takes the goodness of the God-man, his son, and credits it to the not good of his people. And he takes the sin of his people and credits to the righteous one, who is his son. And then he destroys his son in their place as a substitute. Beloved, this is why it's called good news. We've, We've been given the substitute in order to live. All the conditions are met. God is sovereign in His working of the gospel. He created the world. He created humanity. And we need to remember that God's promises in Scripture have sometimes a dual meaning. Just as blessings and just as conditions do. Temporal things illustrate God's promises to His elect and His power to provide rest and joy and peace and prosperity in life as well as to show His power alone can effectuate and fulfill these things. And each time creation is left with a condition, it will fail. Each time that which God has made, if God is not the single soul power source behind it, it will fail. And sometimes we see promises in the temporal promises of Scripture. We're not to look at them and think, well, God, those are eternal promises. God has not promised to create a nation of Israel and to keep it perpetually. God has not promised to keep the promised land in a certain sect of people perpetually. God has not promised to keep giving Abraham children. There's a picture there of Christ. That is the eternal end of it all. So blessings and curses and life and death and prosperity and power are all part of God's showing that He alone can create good things and empower goodness and He alone brings wrath and destruction. He alone is doing all that is taking place even in our present day. Everything that is happening is by the power and the purposes of God. So in Genesis 2 now we have this creation of this creature called man. And we fully formed through the reading of this text and just sitting still in it. You notice that it's not didactic. It's not like, and then God did this because of this, and this is the theology behind it. It's a narrative, and it's poetic in its construction, so it's to illustrate. It illustrates who God is, and so we have to just stop for a minute. We have to just pause and see it and just listen. How do we listen? By the word of the Lord. So we're so familiar with the New Testament that this starts to make sense, right? Which is why it's odd for me when people start reading the Bible for the first time, they read Genesis. Because it's in the beginning. That's just the way. That's punny. But we fully formed and purposed in the text that God's purpose of creation is good because God said it was good. Yet it was not good because creation in and of itself had no head, had no gardener. Had no one to oversee it, no one to keep it healthy, no, no one to continue to work it. So what God has put together needed more than just itself to exist and continue. It needed God for sure, and God alone could keep it. So the image bearer of God in the shadow of it, the one who is to point to the true image of God and the fullness of God, Jesus Christ, is humanity. So God creates man, and then out of man He creates woman. 
And then in this creation, His eternal purposes will unfold more. And so there are about nine verses. Well, there's actually 11 verses, verses 4 through 15 here that we see. God describing the things that He has created, trees. Matter of fact, if you take the tree and, and uh, you know, the verbiage of trees and vines and waters and fruit and all that kind of stuff, and you pull them out of the ESV, it's probably eight, over 800 references. A lot of them in the New Testament, too. Jesus uses it a lot. The vine and all these things. So there's something big to deal with in, in Genesis where Jesus ta- where, where, well, okay, where God talks about trees. And He's done some stuff. Man is put into the garden, which is a place of rest, a tabernacle, if you will, a worshipful place where God and man can coexist in unity. Where God has created the, 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 the vegetation of the world to reproduce itself in such a way that would provide food for humanity. And that man, if he tends it well, can take that food, harvest it, and eat and live forever. But if he doesn't eat and tend to things as God has provided, then he will die. So man is put in the garden that he might keep it. The condition on keeping the garden is on the creature. Have you ever not cut your grass for three weeks? Have you ever gone to a property that you don't visit much and then you go back a month later and it looks like, I mean, is a giraffe coming out of here? Especially during the summer. So God has created the garden and everything in it and everything in the garden will supply life-giving food in a perpetual or self-producing manner for humanity. And so he puts man in the garden. And the creation that God has made will be fruitful because God decreed that it will be fruitful. It will do that which it was prepared to do and created to do. And so then man also will be fruitful, as we'll see next week. He will multiply. But there's something interesting about trees and the relationship with humanity in the context of Scripture. Now, this is where we could come from science or biology and come back to the Bible through that lens and go, wow, this is pretty neat. Do you know, without oxygen-breathing creatures, trees would die, right? Because we breathe oxygen that trees give off, and then the carbon dioxide that we breathe out, trees take in. And so there's this sort of mutual benefit there. But in this garden, trees live without man. But man die without trees. So God has given the trees, and then the rest, the resting in the garden, is God's doing. He has provided a place where man can sit forever and rest and bask in the glory of God. Now see the picture? It's temporary. I don't think it lasts a day. I think before the sun goes down on the first day of creation, Adam and Eve have fallen. Now, that's just my thoughts. But I really believe it. I don't believe it was long at all. It wasn't weeks and months, and it surely wasn't months. So God's presence and power is required in this symbol, in this shadow of being in this garden, in this temple, in this place, with God's provision of life. Man must stay connected to these trees and eat of these trees in order to live. This is a symbol, this is a picture, this is a shadow of the presence of God. 
This is a shadow of the sovereignty of God who created all things that it might live and is the only one who can do this and is the only one who can bring redemption. This is the first picture of gospel that we see in the Bible. That man will live if he stays connected to that substance that God has alone provided. And so it's a picture of the gospel, but it's not a perfect gospel because it's not going to last. God's presence and power is required for man to live. God's effectual mercy and the gospel and the grace of His power is effectual for eternal life. Just think about it. You'll see it. So then Adam came from the same place that the trees came. Adam came from the dirt. The trees came from the dirt. So what's the difference? The purpose in which they were created. The form in which they were given. God created the dirt. And God out of the dirt created the trees. And God out of the dirt created humanity. So we're nothing but dirt, clay, in the hand of our Creator. So here, Adam came from the same ground that the trees came from. And Adam lives because God created him to live. God breathed into him the breath of life. Adam was not alive. He was just a clay vessel. He was just a, 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 a sculpture, if you will, without the breath of life. We are dead without the breath of the life of the Holy Spirit. We are dead without the promise, the eternal love of God for His people. We are dead. We are nothing but dust without the mercy of God. And God gives life to Adam and Adam lives because of God and then God has decreed that man cannot remain alive without the trees, without the food that comes from the trees. And the picture of the trees and the trees in the garden, there are many, but in the center of the garden, God has identified two specific trees that I don't think were any different than any other tree there. I think God just cut them out and said, don't touch these. Don't eat from these. You have the trees next to them. You have the trees around them. You have all the trees that you can see. You eat and you live. You see? You eat and you live. And if you eat of these trees out here, you will live. But if you eat of either one of these trees, you shall die. What were the trees? The tree of life. Ironic, isn't it? Don't eat of the tree of life or you will die. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. He only says don't eat of the tree of knowledge. What is the knowledge of? Good and evil. He says, Surely you may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now think about that for a second. Now see, as I spoke there, I spoke a, a, a falsehood on purpose. Because it is the narrative that most of us are taught. I think <laughs> you must have heard it. I lied to you. And we just accept it. The lie was that God told them not to eat of the tree of life. He never said that. As a matter of fact, after the fall, as we'll see next week, after they eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, I will take them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of eternal life and live forever. You see. It's not like God was trying to keep them from dying. That was his point. They weren't going to eat from that tree. 
Because the tree of the knowledge of the tree of life is just like, I believe, every other tree out there in the context of the promises of God to live forever is conditioned upon God. But when it's conditioned upon man, what man does is he seeks alternatives. And man would rather, would rather know more details and have more knowledge so that he could be closer to being like God in power rather than just rest in the sufficiency of God's power. Now you tell me where the, church of the, the history of the church is not eat up with that. You tell me with some of the things that we've been dealing with over the last eight months in some of our personal situations is not that same sin. God has made a promise. And then He put man at work in the garden of promise, in the garden of life. And man, by the hand of God, has everything he needs to sustain himself forever by the hand of God. This is called providence. Providence is the, is, includes the sustenance of life. God's providence reigns across all of creation. And God's providence gives water to dry places and rain to parched places and vegetation to deserts. And, 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 and the, the list goes on and on and on. And the reprobate and the elect eat of its bounty equally. As a matter of fact, I would argue that sometimes the elect suffer more. Because we all share in the suffering of Christ. We're persecuted. And thus we sometimes miss the providence of God for life. But in our death, we get everything. So this promise of God, this providence of God, this is both real and spiritual. And the spiritual is the true. Real means tangible, physical, touchable. So in this real, tangible, physical, touchable garden with this real human person, God is walking with him. Jesus, the Son of God, is walking with his created being in the creation that he had made. And he's making promises that point to himself becoming like the creation so that one day he will make Adam good forever in himself as the tree of life, as the bread of life, as the living water. Listen. Listen to Jesus' teaching in this. The bread that comes down from heaven. What is the exodus about? The exodus is still now God taking this world and creating a people. And these people then have not fulfilled their conditioned, their, their part of staying in the promises of God and instead have gone to try to find more Joy somewhere else, more life somewhere else, better bread in another bakery. And God put them into slavery for 500 years in Egypt. And then God promised that He would give them Eden. He would give them rest. So He takes them out of Egypt by the work of His power through a murderer as their leader who can't even speak well, so he sends his brother to speak on his behalf because he cannot speak well. Moses didn't say these things. Aaron said these things. You see that when he spoke to Pharaoh. Aaron spoke. Moses stood. Because Moses couldn't speak. We don't know why. He was too scared, speech impediment, whatever. Maybe it sounded like Elmer Fudd or Porky Pig. I don't know. Either way, God sent him prepared. 
And then he takes them out of Egypt, puts them into the wilderness, taking them straight to a land that someone else occupied, but God had promised that they could have it and they would live in joy and be fat and happy and excited and full. And what do they do? Complain. Because God, in a sense, brings trees to grow every morning to give them food called manna. This spiritual bread that laid on the ground and perished by noon. And they'd rather have the death of Egypt and its milk than the promise of life in God. This is what the truth of the human condition really is. And beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, it was true of Adam before he ever took that fruit. It was true of him. He'd rather have that tree of knowledge than the promise of eternal life. He'd rather sit on his own understanding than rest in the sufficiency of the power of God who created all things. Because until God sovereignly creates us to be glorified, we will always choose the flesh. God gives life. God creates. And humanity tends to the garden. And in this, there's a little bit of the image of God in that God is overseeing life. But ultimately, it points to the true image bearer who is Jesus Christ. In closing, I want you to think about this. Let's go to Psalm 1 together. I want you to see the picture that the psalmist paints here. And look at the similes and the imagery. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on His law He meditates day and night. Now we know, according to Paul, what the law of the Lord is. And it is the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 3 clearly shows it. The righteousness of God, though it is what shadowed by the law and the prophets, it's just a shadow. The righteousness of God revealed through Jesus Christ. But this man who delights in the righteousness of God, who delights in the promises of God, who delights in the purposes of God. You see, that? what, what is the law except to show you what will kill you? And to show you that without God's power, you will die. God didn't say, if you eat of it. God says, when you eat of it. Because God had decreed that Adam would eat of the tree. There was no opportunity for Adam not to eat the tree because God had decreed that he would eat the tree. They didn't pull one over on God. It was in Adam innately to desire knowledge. It's in us. But look at what the psalmist says. He, this man who delights in Christ, who delights in the righteousness of God, who delights in the promises of God, who delights in the life-giving sovereignty of God... He is like a tree 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And in other words, they will not stand up. They'll be brought to their knees. Nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now this is an amazing little psalm that we like to use to our children to scare them. But it's not a scare tactic. It's a gospel glorious promise. That when we stand because of the power of God in the congregation of the righteous, which has not happened yet, when we stand in judgment, it's because we are not guilty. When we stand being declared perfect, it's because God has made us that way. This is the point. God alone can create anything He wants and call it good. And He can call good anything He chooses because God has the authority and the power to establish the goodness that is required through His own image. And the only person that has established that goodness is Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. So the Genesis account, again, seventh time I've said this in eight weeks, is about Christ. It's about the sovereignty of God in the giving of the Son to be Redeemer, to be life giver, to be the tree. Jesus uses the same analogy. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you cut yourself away from me, you have nothing. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. But what is it, what happens in spiritual people? When I say spiritual people and religious people, what happens in their minds when they hear that? They think to themselves, there's got to be more. So what is Jesus telling me to do? Follow Him everywhere? Now yeah, He's commanded us to do that. But that following Jesus everywhere won't grant us eternal life. We must be counted in Him. We must be given to Him. He must be our head. He must be our husband. We must be His body. Because if we're not, when His body was killed on the tree, then His death wasn't effectual for us. When His body was laid in the ground, His death was not powerful for us if we weren't found in Him. How are we found in Christ? Because God, who out of nothing created everything and brought it into order that life may exist upon it, showing that He alone can sustain life and that no created thing can ever establish its own eternity, God, that God, that sovereign, that power, that gospel is our only hope. And faith is hearing that promise, seeing it as the tree of life, and not seeking some other knowledge to come along beside it, some other further distinction to further separate us in our own selves to make us closer to Christ. We are either in Him or we are not in Him. He is our life or He will be our judge. Are you resting in the person of Christ? Are you satisfied in the sovereignty of God? Beloved, this is good news. It's not scary, except that you sit here find yourself outside the camp. So we'll talk about next week. Outside the garden. Outside. 
But for those whom God gives ears to hear, it is, it is beautiful. It is pleasant. It is glorious. It is joyful because He establishes us in Himself powerfully. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for Your Gospel, for the good news of Your sovereignty. Lord, for the person of Jesus Christ in whom we find all of our worth and in whom we see the fullness of all that You are. So Lord, as we continue to think about these things, Lord, help us to see that which Scripture can teach us in this context. Help us to read this, Lord, through the lens of the apostles. Father, don't don't let us get bogged down in so many things that aren't necessarily vital. But help us to see the whole picture, to back up and look at the picture of Christ in this account. And Lord, I pray that you give us clarity as I continue to go through this section over and over again in the weeks to come. And Lord, that when we get through, we can worship. Truly knowing that it is not even because we understand all these little things. But Father, it's because you have granted us the understanding that Jesus Christ has given himself as a ransom for your people. And that when we can sit still and we can hope only in Christ, it's because you have granted us such a great faith. Because we belong to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.